Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Monday, August 31st. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Ion College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlanda is here with me, and it's been a, a rough few days for the sport of college basketball. Last Thursday, Hall of Fame coach Lute Olson died at the age of 85, and then news broke early on Monday that Hall of Fame coach John Thompson has died at the age of 78. So that's two Hall of Fame coaches, legendary, iconic figures gone in a span of five days. And Norlander, I want to get to both men, obviously, but let's start with the most recent news, the breaking news, if you will. John Thompson Jr., the first black coach to guide a Division I team to the NCAA tournament title when he led Georgetown to the national championship in 1984 has died at the age of 78. You wrote the obit for CBS Sports. So if you can, explain to the listeners, some of whom are perhaps too young to properly understand the impact Big John made, uh, explain why John Thompson, the Georgetown legend, is one of the most important figures in the history of American sports. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I know we have uh, young and older listeners alike, but uh, surely uh, a certain percentage of our listening audience was not alive when John Thompson left the coaching profession in 1999. Um, in my opinion, Parrish, John Thompson is a person that you can only not only you have to tell his story if you're going to tell the story of college basketball. Okay. So the story of college basketball can't be written without John Thompson. And, and I believe the story of social justice for black people in our country can't be told without John Thompson because his prominence from the 70s, big time in the 80s when Georgetown was at its peak, uh, and then into the 90s, and really even thereafter, um, was huge. There were other prominent, accomplished black coaches uh, by his side, most notably Nolan Richardson, who won a national championship in 1994 with Arkansas and Temple's John Chaney, who were uh, frequently outspoken on these issues. But John Thompson, uh, because of where he coached uh, Georgetown, which was not which was not seen as a haven for black athletes to go and play basketball at until John Thompson got there. In fact, the irony is that John Thompson was an incredible high school basketball player, a parade All-American, wound up playing at Providence, played on... A fact that I think almost never gets acknowledged and discussed is that John Thompson was a third-round NBA pick and was a member of the Boston Celtics championship teams during during a time when the Celtics were the absolute dynasty of the NBA. He was an amazing basketball player, but it more speaks to how big of a figure he was as a coach that that part of his life is is put on the total back burner there. But he grew up in Washington, D.C., and Georgetown was such a non-factor, it did not even recruit him when he was a Parade All-American. He wound up playing at Providence. And 
listen, a- any coach that is worth his or her salt uh, will live on through the memories and, and appraisals and, and, and high praise of their players. But to me, and, and Allen Iverson has become the player who has embodied this more than any other, I think, former uh, John Thompson player when he said he saved his life. He had that memorable, tear-filled Hall of Fame speech in 2016, did AI. Thompson himself was uh, inducted into the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame in 1999, the year that he left coaching. Um, but for everything he stood for, was vocal with, and make no mistake about it, while as we talk on this podcast, and you'll read plenty, see plenty, hear plenty about John Thompson, uh, he fought for what he believed, but he was also among the most difficult coaches to deal with, and that is to his credit all these years later. But he he was very aware of that. He was... Um, he was uh, beloved. Uh, he could. I can't get the image out of my mind of him revealing him wearing the uh, the Louis Carnesecca sweater when he played against St. John's. He had that that soft side to him, but absolutely he could be uh, rough and gruff. wasn't always kind to the media. And I think at the time when he was doing a lot of these things, Parrish, and speaking up for racial injustices and fighting back against. I want to give you the floor here too, but like, uh, there is a particular thing that stands out to me um, amongst all the other things. It's when he went to the Final Four in '82, and that's when Ewing was a freshman, and he basically was asked about being the first black coach to make it to the Final Four. This is a direct quote from John Thompson in 1982. He said, "I resent the hell out of that question. It implies that I'm the first black coach capable of making the Final Four. That's not close to true. I'm just the first one who is given the opportunity to get here. And I think what something that's important for everyone to keep at the front of their minds as they learn more and hear more and intake this." just tragic death with John Thompson is that he was speaking truce to a lot of things in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties that I think only in the past two weeks, two months, two years have become more on the forefront of the discussion in mainstream American sports discourse pair. So credit to him, his legacy will live on. I got plenty more to say, but I'm going to throw it back to you with your thoughts on, uh, on what he meant to college basketball sports in general. And then obviously reference to your column, you know, you know, John Thompson was a, a larger than life figure in sports, but as, you know, on a personal level, for me, because some of it comes down to to timing. You know, I was born in 1977, and as we've talked about in various conversations before, when I started to really attach to sports was you know about the age of five or six or seven years old. Uh, which lines up with the same time I started playing sports. And that's how I became a New York Mets fan. I still get asked every four days on Twitter, like why you're from Mississippi, grew up in the Memphis area. Why are you a Mets fan? Because there were three baseball teams that played on cable when I was a child, the Braves, the Cubs and the Mets. And the Mets had these young stars, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. And I sort of latched on and it's been miserable ever since. But around that same time is when John Thompson was running one of the best and certainly uh, most notable college basketball programs in the sport. Uh, like I said, I, I, I grew up in the Memphis area. At the time, there was no professional sports franchise here. Um, but Memphis State basketball was very much a professional sports franchise. At least it was treated that way and still is to this day on some level. So the best years of Memphis basketball in my childhood lined up with the greatest Georgetown years. 
And so as I'm falling in love with the sport, arguably the biggest figure in the sport, um, literally and figuratively, is John Thompson Jr. And I can still vividly remember the Patrick Ewing years, especially 1985 when they go to the Final Four. Two other Big East schools are there, St. John's and 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 Villanova, and then Memphis State was there. And that whole tournament, I can like, you know, I'm I'm a child, I'm seven, eight years old, and I'm envisioning envisioning this national championship game between Keith Lee and Memphis State and John Thompson, Patrick Ewing. Obviously, Villanova screwed that up. My point is, if you are trying to discuss the biggest figures in sports of my early childhood, John Thompson is is on that list, even though he was coaching many, many miles away from, from where I grew up. Um, the impact that he made is, is hard to quantify because it, it, it applies both on the court and off. Obviously, Hall of Fame basketball coach, but undeniably so much more than that. I led the column I wrote about a protest in 1989 that he conducted. Uh, Georgetown's getting ready to play. Boston College, and the NCAA had just voted to make it where student athletes who didn't have certain standardized test scores would not be allowed to be on athletic scholarship as a freshman. At the time, they would be ineligible as freshmen, but you could still put them on athletic scholarship and allow them to to be a part of your program, just not participate in games. Well, there was a vote that happened the week of this game where the new rule was going to be you, if somebody doesn't have a certain SAT or ACT score, they cannot be on athletic scholarship. And there was estimates done that showed roughly 600 student athletes annually would be negatively impacted by this rule. And 90% of those student athletes were black. And so for obvious reasons, it's infuriated John Thompson. So he comes out as he normally does before a game against Boston College and watches his team warm up, sort of pacing the sideline, white towel on his shoulder. And after the player introductions, but before tip-off, he tossed his towel to an assistant, walked across the court, off the court, and got into a sedan that was waiting for him. He left the building, and then the game tipped off. And as the story goes, he got his driver to drop him off at his car, and then he just sort of drove around for a little while, listened to the game, then turned it off, listened a little bit more, turned it off. And as John Thompson was telling the story after the game, he said at one point he was driving past a convenience store and he saw a group of men sort of lingering outside of this convenience store in a way that, and these are my words, not his, but that that suggested they were up to no good. And while referencing Those people, this is what John Thompson said. He said, quote, if these kids today don't get that opportunity to get an education, who are they going to look to? Those people lingering at that store? He said, I had to reassure myself I was doing the right thing. I'm sure now I'm right. And so I just thought it was pretty interesting that 31 years before the NABC earlier this year formally proposed to eliminate standardized tests from initial eligibility, John Thompson was making the same point three decades ago. 
And as I also put in the column, you know, 31 years before the Milwaukee Bucks were refusing to play a game because of an issue tied to, to race, uh, John Thompson was refusing to coach a game um, because of an issue tied to race. Um, he was a giant figure, and there's about a million more stories tied to stuff like that that make it clear, yes, um, in the sport, he was accomplished and in many ways unmatched, but the stuff he did away from the sport or used the sport to get accomplished um, really helped tell a larger story about him. Yeah, that was wound up being a two-game personal strike that Thompson went on in 89, and you're absolutely right. While uh, many of the direct reasons why we saw uh, player wildcat strikes uh, in the past week or so, specifically with the NBA, and then prompting that with other leagues, uh, were tied to the uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake and uh, you know ostensibly to police brutality. All of this falls under the umbrella of um, of anti racism and social justice reform, and those exact things were what John Thompson was doing in 1989. It is incredible. It's also it, Death is always sad. It is sad as hell that this man, Parrish, is gone in the midst of all this and could not make it to three months from now, a year from now, five years from now, hey, ten years from now, who knows where we'll be as a country. Um, But for him to uh, step off this mortal coil now in the midst of all this, when he fought so much for this, spoke with a few black coaches earlier on Monday morning, and that was obviously something that, that, that came up. It's just... It's a particularly stinging and bitter irony that he would pass right here at this moment in time. Yeah, um, I, I only I, I was hesitant to to put this in the column, and I, I think I actually took it out um, for reasons that I wasn't initially hesitant about. But I saw Lavelle Moten, the North Carolina Central coach, say the same thing. Oh, he did. Uh, so what? Um, no, not about that. Okay, but about about what I'm about to say. When I was a kid. I knew nothing about Georgetown, nothing, except that it was a place that had awesome basketball teams and like, and, 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 a you know, and big John as the coach. And, um, it was such a part of the culture. I don't think I even knew what an HBCU was, but I like on some level thought Georgetown was a quote black school. Yeah. It it, it wasn't. As did I when I was young. Right. I just thought that, well, that that's people who look like me don't go to school there. It, which is like obviously incredibly wrong. It like, was the exact what, opposite. Correct. That's what makes what he did amazing because it was the exact opposite. Yes. It's the exact opposite. And Georgetown is one of the greatest schools in this country. My son, my oldest son has visited Georgetown, is considering maybe going there. And I, it never occurred to me as a child that that was Georgetown because John Thompson was the face of Georgetown. And the everything of Georgetown, I think you can reasonably argue in ways that are unmatched by a college coach. Like, is there like Bob Knight, Indiana, I guess. But is there another college coach that is more closely tied to the image of the school than John Thompson Jr.? I'm not I'm not sure. Like, you know, there have obviously been other wildly successful, prominent coaches but I don't know that when you think of the school, you immediately think of them as much as when you think of Georgetown, at least in those times, the first thing you thought of was, was big John. Sure. Duke with Mike Krzyzewski is one of them. And I will listen. And by the way, speaking to John Thompson's 
uh, power and legacy. You are getting everyone from Kamala Harris to Michael Jordan to every prominent coach is going to put out a statement. The response and the reaction to Thompson will tell you all you need to know about how much he meant to American sports, not college basketball, American sports. And another coach who would apply to that GP is the coach who has had more time affiliated with his school than any coach in the history of college basketball. And we might even be getting close to a point where it might be all of college athletics. I don't know how you would fact check that, but obviously I'm referring to Jim Beheim, who was uh, Thompson's longtime rival, and Beheim has recalled plenty of times now, and, and they both did even in recent years, where they were bitter rivals for a long time, and near the end of Thompson's tenure, like mid to late 90s, they shifted into that friendship dynamic and less bitter rivals. Um, I will read Beheim's statement real quick here that he that he released on Monday. He said, We lost a great basketball coach and a great person with the passing of my friend John Thompson. He was a leader in the game and in life. John empowered all coaches, but especially black coaches and black players. Syracuse and Georgetown was the toughest rivalry for about 10 to 15 years during the Big East days. There was nothing quite like it. Many of my fondest coaching memories are from Georgetown games, coaching against John in the Dome at Georgetown and at MSG. So I, first of all, he does not include Manly Fieldhouse. One of the most memorable John Thompson quotes ever is, in 1980, so the 79-80 season is the first season that the Big East is in existence. And by the way, the Big East coming into existence, Dave Gavitt is the architect and godfather of that. But John Thompson, uh, in addition to a few other people in Bayheim as well, were so instrumental in getting the league off the ground and then giving it the momentum to be the preeminent league in college basketball for most of the 1980s. So it's the first season. And one thing that's often forgot about this is when Georgetown goes to play at Syracuse in February of 1980, Syracuse is a 20-1 basketball team. Georgetown's good. It's made some tournaments, but it's still on its way up at that point. And in the final game ever played at Manly Fieldhouse, before there was a Carrier Dome, John Thompson uh, infamously says in the postgame presser, Manly Fieldhouse is officially closed. That quote is amazing. It's an all-time drop-the-mic moment, and it actually helped fester a real rivalry between the schools that prevented Bayheim and Thompson, I think, from really cozying up to each other for a number of years. But that was to the betterment of that rivalry, to that conference, to college basketball, and what Georgetown was able to do in the Big East being, uh, Parrish, I think you're absolutely right. Now, you and I can't definitively speak on this because we were not, you know, we weren't 16, we weren't 24, we weren't 29 in the mid-1980s, but it really does seem like Georgetown was the preeminent program, and John Thompson, this was after Wooden, this was before Kay ascended, he was the, uh, Dean Smith and John Thompson were the two most important coaches in college basketball during that decade of the 1980s, and they had a hell of a lot in common. Obviously, they met in that 1982 championship game. What's always interested me about John Thompson's legacy is he was he is considered there's there it's just no debate. Okay, it's Wooden, it's it's Knight, it's K, it's Thompson, the uh, it's Dean Smith, like the most important figures in the history of college basketball for one reason or another. And he could so easily have had three national championships, but that was never held against him and, and and nor should it have been but if not for Michael Jordan he probably has two and if not for just one of the all-time unexpected wild championship game performances against Nova in 85 he has another there so he got his one in 84 he easily could have had three and you and I 
grew to love the sport that we love and cover the sport that we cover because of what college basketball showed us and, and endeared us to when we were younger. And a lot of what that was and what it was built on was thanks to John Thompson and what Georgetown was able to do. And for me, I mean, I'll tell you straight up, GP, there were a few different things. I've mentioned them on previous podcasts over the years. Seeing UNLV in 1990 was a big factor. Kentucky in the early 90s, that 96 Kentucky team, and seeing what Georgetown was when it had Allen Iverson. I mean, Allen Iverson playing at Georgetown, I was a, a, a white kid in one of the whitest states in the country in Vermont. And I'm telling you, Allen Iverson at my, at my I would have been middle school, just in the high school at that point, Allen Iverson was a revelation. Georgetown was an incredible program to follow. It was so influential. And I want to give credit J.A. Adonde to this because I did not realize this until he tweeted it out earlier. He says, because of John Thompson and Patrick Ewing, the Georgetown starter jacket is part of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture Collection. It's one of the most symbolic sports apparels of the 1980s. It's absolutely true. I didn't realize it was put on that level, but it just speaks to, again, the Georgetown brand and how powerful it was. And when you and I talk at the start of last season on the podcast when Georgetown got off to a start. We had a we had half a podcast dedicated to Georgetown and what it means. It Thompson's influence was so big that even though Georgetown, for the most part, over the past 15 years, it's just been an up-and-down program. Right now, it's expected to be the worst team going into the season next season in the Big East. But it still carries so much cachet and power that the minute, GP, the minute Georgetown becomes relevant to the tune of being a top-20 team in college basketball, it instantly changes the dynamics of the sport on a national level in ways that few other schools can do. Right. It's why I uh, have wanted Patrick Ewing to get uh, the Georgetown program running at a relevant nas- uh, at, at a relevant level on the national level because Georgetown is a big brand in the sport of college basketball. And uh, basketball's better when Georgetown matters. There was that tiny bit of time last season where it felt like Georgetown mattered. And um, – Again, it's just that that's a big brand for my childhood and it, it's, um, it, you know, it, it, it deserves to have a, a place in, in, in college basketball in these times. Uh, certainly the Big East would, would uh, benefit from that greatly. You mentioned, you know, other giants of the sport, Mike Krzyzewski, um, Roy Williams, you know, men who are still coaching, Jim Beheim, um, and, and then coaches from years past uh, John Wooden and, and Jim Calhoun and Bob Knight. And obviously like, I, I don't, I don't want to get into ranking college basketball coaches. Um, but I think you could make a reasonable argument that perhaps big John wasn't as accomplished as some of them. I mean, he clearly wasn't, you can just like call up the Wikipedia page, but you could argue he's the most important because the list of white coaches who have been at the top of the sport, you know, it, it existed before, Mike Krzyzewski, it existed before, you know, it, it, it's always been there. Yeah. Um, with, with John Thompson, nobody who looked like him had ever done what he did. He was a first. And I love the quote that you um, read early in the podcast, how he was offended when it was mentioned to him that he was the first black coach to make a final four because at least in his eyes, the implication was he was the first one who could do it. And that's just not true. He was the first one given a real opportunity to do it. I, I, I do think that's John maybe downplaying his significance a little bit, but still um, I, I can appreciate the quote. Um, it, it, I couldn't help but think, and I don't want to get too loose with the storytelling, but I think this works. Um, there was another just tragic death on Friday. Yeah. 
Chadwick Boseman, um, the 43-year-old acclaimed actor who had privately uh, battled colon cancer for four years. Um, I, I think we have known for a while that he was dealing with something because he had been photographed entering a hospital. He had been um, on video looking very, very frail. But he never publicly disclosed that he had been battling cancer um, for all these years. Like while he made Black Panther, he was battling colon cancer. It's just amazing, the strength. Um, incredibly, he was more of a superhero in real life than he was on the screen. And so a lot of things have been said and written about him since Friday night. A lot of old videos have resurfaced. But there's one where it was a part of Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show. And what they did was they set up um, a camera in some place and they had black people speaking to the camera as if they were speaking to Chadwick Boseman to, to say to him, you know, what it meant to them to see a black superhero because he was the first black superhero to get his own standalone film um, in the Marvel franchise. And one person after another explained that, you know, their, their children now have somebody to, to look a superhero that, that looks like them. And you cannot properly understand like what that means to a generation of people. Like I grew up with Superman and Batman. Like I'd seen superheroes look like me since the day I could recognize what a superhero was, but black people in this country never had that. And it's one of the reasons his death resonates the way it resonates. And one of the reasons that film was so important and it's a little bit like Barack Obama. I guess we always sort of assumed maybe a, a black person could become president of the United States, but we'd never seen it happen. Children had never seen it happen until Barack Obama was elected president of this United States. And I don't think it's inappropriate to put John Thompson in that same sort of category. Like, I guess we always assumed if a black man got the opportunity, he could maybe lead a school to a national championship. But we'd never seen it at the Division One level until John Thompson did it. And he quite he, 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 he sparked dreams and I think quite literally created job opportunities for countless number of coaches. Like, is there a Nolan Richardson without John Thompson? Is there a John Chaney without John Thompson? Is there a Leonard Hamilton, a Shaka Smart, and Anthony Grant? I'm not sure. Uh, the list of black coaches who were given opportunities because of John Thompson still isn't long enough, not as long as it should be, but it is long. And I, you could never uh, discount the role he played in creating opportunities for the men who right now who look like him are coaching at the highest level of the sport, some of the best universities in this country, and yes, making generational, uh, creating generational wealth that can break cycles in a variety of ways. That's right. And, you know, in fact, earlier on Monday, uh, I did catch up with a couple of Big East uh, coaches and you know, as you reported more than two months ago, Parrish, um, the Big East was the first American sports league conference, however you want to frame it, the first entity in American sports to actually officially approve 
the uh, the action to put Black Lives Matter and a patch on on their league's uniforms, um, and that will happen if and when we can get to a, a college basketball regular season. Um, but in talking with those coaches, just kind of reacting to to Thompson's death, uh, you know, it was obviously explicitly communicated that John Thompson was a significant part in the inspiration of coaches for action, which has been. Uh, one of the um, the few different uh, social justice initiatives we've seen uh, pop up in college basketball in the past couple of months. But what makes it so interesting with Coaches for Action is that it came, as you know, from Big East assistants, all of whom are minorities and predominantly black. And, um, you know, John Thompson's name was obviously referenced in the initial press release about putting Coaches for Action into action. And it was expressed to me that, you know, all of these black and minority Big East assistants are just taking the baton from him and what he stood for, what he did, what he was able to accomplish. And, I mean, one of them told me directly, to be honest, we wouldn't even have 21 minority men's coaches in our league without John Thompson. That's why we are doing what we're doing. And, in fact, uh, another coach told me that there had been some discussions in the Big East about having, quote, the Thompson rule, which would be similar to the NFL's Rooney rule. But what I understand of it, and it's not official yet or anything, it wouldn't explicitly be if you're going to hire a coach, you have to make sure that you interview a minority uh, candidate. That might be part of it, but that's not going to be all of it. The Big East actually is as diverse of a coaching um sect, if you will, in, in all of college basketball, non-HBCU related there. So the Big East, particularly now, um, it's it's got just a, a bevy of black coaches. Ed Cooley, Providence coach, obviously, who had a connection with John Thompson, Dave Lado, Laval Jordan. You can go down the list, and there are plenty of uh, black coaches in the Big East, but um, I do think that you will see even more come out of the Big East, Paris, in the next couple of weeks or months uh, as it relates to Thompson's death and spurring even more initiatives and specific change. But you are right. Um, who John Thompson was and what he stood for really enabled um, so many black coaches to believe they could be black coaches long before that because it was definitely not the way it was. It is now back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, uh, specifically there. I did, um, I know we're going to get to Ludolf in just a minute here, but I didn't know if you had a, a personal anecdote with Thompson to share or not. I do have one that I just, I did want to share and lay out on the podcast because at the time that it actually happened, um, I, I, it, it did leave an imprint on me. So it's 2011. It's the Final Four in Houston. It's the first Final Four I've ever covered. Um, was staying, I guess, staying at the same hotel as as John. Um, so we get to the elevator, and I, I guess, or we might have been in the coach's hotel. I can't actually. I don't think we were in the same hotel that we were staying at because, as I remember, Paris, you weren't there. You were at the. Um, Oh man, you were at those uh, those suites. You remember that? You and Goodman got the suites. You weren't at the media hotel. Do you remember any of this? I, I, yeah, you don't. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, I, I, I vaguely remember 2011. Yeah. Sure. No, actually, I do remember. Uh, there are things I won't uh, ramble on about, but yeah, there was a story you had to write uh, at the 2011 Final Four, I think, about a hiring, and it was like you were trying to like break the story. It was a whole big deal, but you weren't where we were at. But yeah, so Thompson, and I must have been at a hotel where we weren't staying at because we met at the elevator. 
And as as you know, sometimes if you want to take the elevator to certain floors in a hotel, you have to have a room key for those. And so we both step into the elevator, and it's the first time I've ever been in the presence of John Thompson, and he's a six foot ten man. <laughs> he, is, he he cuts an imposing figure, and um, so let's just say like I wanted to go to floor four, he wanted to go to floor seven, whatever. We we hit the buttons, and we just you know it's just kind of just there for a couple of seconds, and nothing's happening, and just as we like continue, perish. I'm telling you, it was um. A minute, maybe a minute of us hitting the buttons, the door not closing on the elevator, the buttons not lighting up. And uh, eventually I turn to him and I go, I think I think we actually need to have the key to at this hotel in order to go up this elevator. And he says something along the lines of like, well, young man, I guess we're just going to have to sit here and wait for someone to come along and help us. And then he asked me, and someone eventually did. I couldn't remember who, but someone actually did who was staying at that hotel came along and had the room key and helped us out. But he did ask me who I was, who I worked for. This is me covering my first Final Four. I don't even think that the semifinals had happened yet. So I'm obviously like wide-eyed. I'm taking it all in. Um Plenty of media members were bitching about Houston for many reasons. It had never been at that venue before. The media hotel was actually a disaster in terms of so many logistics. I had no frame of reference, so I was fine with everything. Um, so amid all this, to at my first Final Four, bump into John Thompson was... I mean, that was really... 2010-2011 was my first season with CBS in full, and that left a huge impression on me. And then thereafter... You know, he did all these games on radio for Westwood One. So Big East Tournament would always call big uh, call the radio. And then he would call the Final Four on Westwood One up until a year or two ago. And I know, Paris, you've been on the set in recent years with CBS Sports Network, so you haven't actually been in, um, in, the, in the actual stadium there. But, I mean, I'm going to tell you... Before the game, after the game, just uh, he was one of the few people. Like when you go cover an event like that, there's obviously a lot of important people, notable people. You never like Michael Jordan came one time when they when it was North Carolina. Joe Biden was there when Syracuse was in the Final Four a few years ago. There are just certain people that have an energy and presence around them. And for Thompson, uh, he when you're on the floor at the Final Four, the press seats are all below you. They're below deck, if you will. But even despite that, it would if you passed by John Thompson, it felt like even though you might have been standing over him, he was 20 feet above you, man. He was just an incredible presence. And I'll, I'll end with this one more anecdote because it was shared earlier on Monday. And I did want to pass it along because I think it's an incredible, um, just incredible quick little story. So Martin Bahar is now an assistant at the University of San Diego. But he started his career, he was, he was from the greater Maryland area, and he started his career over there. And he started at Georgetown uh, when he kind of broke into the business, wasn't a former player or anything like that. He was a video coordinator uh, after being a GA, and he tragically lost his sister to cancer in 2009. And he told a story in a few, in a few tidbits uh, on Twitter about, He'll never forget the day when his sister's funeral was in February of 2009. And, you know, he's there with his family and with no heads up whatsoever, Parrish, uh, he suddenly discovers that the Georgetown basketball team, all of them, the, the entire staff, all the players, they show up. They show up to support him, to support his family, support his sister. And before he knows it, he looks around and from the back, there's almost a gasp because... John Thompson, who's obviously not the coach at this point, he's been away from the program for a decade, he steps into the room and he said, it's just stuck with me forever since then. You know, he comes to the front of the church, 
sits down, did not know my sister, uh, had heard that she was battling um, uh, just a, a terrible fight for months and months, and he just walked to the front row, sat down for the whole service, and because, you know, Martin Bahar was a video coordinator, his sister was part of the Georgetown family, and that's a story that, like, you know, never heard before about jo John Thompson, and it's just, it speaks to his presence, and... I reached out to Martin afterward, and he said that that really has remained one of the enduring images um, surrounding what was one of the most traumatic times, obviously and understandably, for him and his family's life. Is just that John Thompson found, uh, heard word, found his way to that church, and sat there with everyone and um, and mourned his sister's passing. So I wanted to pass that along as well from you know inside the college basketball coaching family, just to again accentuate just uh, how much the man meant to so many. Yeah, it's a sweet story. I hadn't, I didn't see that one earlier today. Um, uh, John retired while I was still in college. So it's not like I had any professional dealings with him while he was a coach. But as you pointed out, he subsequently became a media member and he didn't just do games for Westwood one. Like he was, he had a radio show and I would go on his radio show all the time it's not like i was a, a regular like every tuesday we'll have gary Parrish from cbs sports but i was on often um to the point to where like you know i if i saw him at the final four i could say uh hey coach how you doing he'd say hey gary i appreciate you coming on the show like we had that kind of relationship and i i, I don't know why i remember this uh, and i don't remember all of the specifics surprise surprise but there was one time I was on his radio show and I want to say it was in advance of the 2008 NBA draft. And we were talking about that draft and that's the Derrick Rose draft, the Kevin Love draft, OJ Mayo, Michael Beasley. And big John asked me about Roy Hibbert. And I was like, listen, like he's going to be a first round pick. And uh, you know, I, I could envision a scenario where he has a, you know, really nice NBA career. Um, but, but like, you know, the odds of him breaking into the top 10 of this draft, just they, they don't seem real good. And I thought that was the nicest way to, to say what I was trying to say. Because you do realize you're talking to Big John. Of course. And, and he got so agitated by that. He's like, you're telling, you're telling me you would take, I don't remember the player, uh, but that player who's a freshman over Roy Hibbert, who's been a four-year college player. And I was like, well, yes, like, yes, I would. And like more to the point, um, every NBA franchise would like this player is going to be a top five pick and, and Roy Hibbert's not. And I think Hibbert ended up going like 17th in the 2008 NBA draft. But like we went back and forth on it. And like it's sort of a surreal experience because, again, you know, to circle back to the top of this podcast, I grew up watching John Thompson and like he was a larger than life figure. Um you know, from the sports world, as, I, as I'm just falling in love with sports, specifically college basketball. And now I'm live on radio arguing with Big John Thompson, which feels wildly inappropriate, but like, I'm also right. <laughs> so, what do you, so what do you do? And I just, I remember getting, because as a radio host, I can tell you, sometimes I have guests on and they say things that I don't agree with, right? And I don't make it, I don't argue with them because they're again first off arguments on radio are awkward um but but they're a guest like, so i don't have to agree with everything my guests say so like I, if i have an nba guest on today and this person says 
I think the uh, Miami Heat are going to win the championship. I might say, really? You think the Miami Heat are going to win the championship? But I won't go, how could you think the Miami Heat are going to win the championship? But that's sort of what this conversation turned into. So it was just a surreal experience because I, I grew up not idolizing this man, but like looking up to this man as a prominent figure. And now I'm on radio, like in a pseudo argument with him. And like, it was fine. That wasn't like the last time I was on. I was on many times after that. But I just remember hanging up the phone and going, holy crap. I was just live on radio arguing with John Thompson about Georgetown basketball players. Like, how did, how did that happen? Yeah. So I did get to know him a little bit as um, you know, as I embarked on this career and, and he was a retired coach working at media. And um, that was really one of the, it was a cool thing, you know, like that, that those are the relationships. And I use the word relationship uh, loosely. I don't mean to overstate the role I prayed in John Thompson's life, which was basically nothing. Um, I hadn't talked to him in years. Um, uh, but those are the relationships that are cool for me to when I get to somewhat know somebody who was a big figure from my childhood. And John Thompson is, is one of those people. Uh, yeah. Before we move on to Lute, I, I did go on his radio show once or twice. And I do like it just when you hear the voice kind of come through the phone like that, it's just, I mean, he really has one of the, uh, the most distinguished and just unforgettable uh, voices, just that, that baritone, that command was just incredible. And, you know, I don't, as we, I, we'll break here and go to Lute Olson, but I just, to me, John Thompson and Patrick Ewing, uh, th- that combo and Ewing has since come out with statements and all that and current Georgetown coach and, and everything to me, they just symbolized, if not epitomized, kind of the greatness that college basketball was capable of in the 1980s. They tapped into like the power and presence that's perished, like rarely if ever been matched since. And during a time that was acknowledged as the sports kind of most significant decade ever. And it is just, this is, this is a heavy, this is a heavy loss. I just didn't think that we were, I didn't think that we were on the verge of losing him like this um, so soon and 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 in this way. So uh, I understand this is, a, in particular, you mentioned Chadwick Boseman uh, with John Thompson. Um, I, I think in recent days, like, these are t- two men uh, for different reasons that are hugely significant and important and influential in black culture specifically. So to any of our listeners uh, who are black, African-American, uh, who happen to be taking these losses particularly hard, our thoughts go out with you because these are these are true icons separated by what, 25 years or so, but nonetheless uh, very influential in their own ways and at very different points in time, but uh, coincidentally and tragically both have passed within about 72 hours of each other. Uh, before we lost John Thompson on Monday, um, we last Thursday lost another Hall of Fame coach. That's Arizona's Lute Olson. Uh, we're going to get into that next, but first, check this out. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. Like me, taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. 
Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So before we lost John Thompson on Monday, we lost Lute Olson last Thursday, and he was undeniably another giant of the sport, a Hall of Famer who first guided Iowa to a Final Four and then won a national championship with Arizona in 1997. It is still Arizona, one of the best basketball programs in this country. It is still Arizona's only uh, national championship. Norlander, you wrote the Lute Olson bit as well, I believe. So uh, just your thoughts on, uh, again, uh, another Hall of Fame coach um, passing, not as surprisingly Mm -hmm. as John Thompson. If we're being honest, um, we knew that Lute was in his final days for a pretty good while. Uh, So when that came down last Thursday night, it wasn't shocking um, or it didn't catch anybody off guard the way uh, Coach Thompson's passing did early Monday. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact... um uh, we've lost, I mean, it, 2020 has just been just been brutal uh, for so many reasons. But if we're going to just narrow this down to college basketball and legendary coaches, first we lost Eddie Sutton. Most, er, quite recently we lost Lou Henson and now John Thompson and Lou Dolson. But um, Olson had suffered a stroke in 2019, and he had been in declining health in recent months. And so this was uh, unfortunately a situation where uh, we thought that it, it well could happen Um uh, coming this year. And, and in fact, that did happen. You know, whereas Thompson took the Georgetown job um, and that was his uh, first and only college coaching job, Lute Olson, a fascinating figure. First of all, the most important basketball figure in the history of his state, Arizona. It doesn't matter in what realm you're talking about any of it, player, coach, anything, pro, college, it, Lute Olson is at the very top of that list. And just like Georgetown was a bad... I mean, Georgetown had won three games and not been to the tournament in three decades. Arizona was brutal in the years before Lute Olson took the job because he was thriving at Iowa. It took him to the Final Four in 1980. Uh, five straight NCAA tournament appearances and basically it brought Iowa to a place of national relevance and consistent success that pretty much the program had not sustained. So think about it this way. Think about if there was a program right now that in the past five or six years had... Not been good enough to win a national championship, but certainly good enough to be a top three program and a power conference, making a final four, getting to the NCAA tournament every single season. And the head coach of that program deciding, after being there, you know, eight or nine years, deciding, I'm good. And not that I'm good, like I'm going to bounce and take an NBA job or bounce and take a job that might have a bit more prestige. I'm going to bounce go to an entirely different part of the country at a program with almost no history and certainly no success in the, in recent seasons. That's what Lute Olson did in the mid-1980s when he left Iowa to pack up and go head to Arizona. I'm trying to think of like what would be a parallel right now for this. It would, it would be as if, honestly, like you can't pick an exact comparison, but it would almost be like 
Scott Drew saying, I'm all set. I'm going to bounce on Baylor to go coach at like DePaul. You know, how about, how about Buzz Williams leaving Marquette to coach Virginia Tech? That's actually a pretty good one. But Buzz didn't make a final four, and Drew didn't make a final four. It's, it, part of it's like how hard it was to get to a final four. It was a different tournament then. There weren't 64 teams. And Iowa was just, it was established, man. It was it was behind Indiana, but right there with pretty much any other program in the Big Ten as, as near the top of the pecking order. Lute Olsen leaves, goes to Arizona, and within five years has that program Right there at the top of the then-called Pac-10, he's got Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott. They're making a Final Four. He won that national title in 97 and just became an institution. Um, I mentioned earlier about how much Allen Iverson and those Georgetown teams meant to me. Um, when I was... The 97 title team to me was was interesting because uh, I, was, I was definitely rooting for Kentucky at that point in my life. There's no doubt about it. But um, it was the Arizona teams that came after that, really those late 90s, early 2000 teams, GP, where... The, the talent that came into Arizona was just, it was just downright absurd. And although Olsen only had one national championship, he really did have four or five teams at minimum with the talent capable of winning a national championship. And uh, Olsen's a great example of how winning a title can really shed some stuff from you because as you know, and, and, and some of our older listeners will know, even though Olsen turned around Arizona, by the mid-90s, they had developed a reputation as a paper tiger, the kind of team that gets to march and just folds, kind of like what Villanova was before Jay won that title in 2016, where they would be seeded first, second, or third, and often get upset by lower-seeded teams in the first or second round. Famously, Steve Nash and Santa Clara defeated Arizona uh, in the early 1993, I think that was, uh, when Arizona was a 2 and Santa Clara was a 15. But you win that title, and a lot of that gets swiped away there. So he he was, uh, he was just he, really a Hall of Fame coach, incredible, has more Pac-10 slash Pac-8 slash Pac-12, however you want to find, define it in that conference. He has more wins than anyone in his history, including Mick Cronin, including John Wooden. He's only second to Wooden in all-time win percentage in that league's history. Just an incredible, incredible coach, quite beloved, and uh, he retired in 07, but he still has one player in the NBA. If you saw my obit, you know it, but... Trivia time. Do you know it? I do. Yeah. Andre Iguodala. Correct. Andre Iguodala is the only Lute Olsen player that is still going in the uh, in the NBA right now. So uh, just some initial thoughts on there. I got a couple thoughts on some of his other teams, but I'll, I'll toss it back to you. Um, obviously, this is an example of another man who, um, you know, uh, was running one of the most prominent basketball programs in my childhood, like, throughout my teenage years. Like, um, I was in college in 1997 when Arizona won the national championship and to then end up having the type of job that, you know, where I, I, you know, I wrote about Ludolsa. I was at his last game. I didn't remember this until I started really? looking it up last week. You know, when I was just, I don't know, I was preparing for a radio segment and just diving into everything. Uh, also because I, I knew we would eventually talk about it on the podcast his last game was in New Orleans against Purdue, first round of the NCAA tournament. And if you remember, we did not know that was his last game. Like he, this is not one of those deals where, you know, sometimes in, in coaching we know, hey, this this prominent coach is retiring after this season. We didn't have that with with Lute. Um, in the last year or so, was pretty 
chaotic. Um, you know, he fired an assistant who had been with him for like 30 years and then hired Kevin O'Neill and made him, I believe, the associate head coach, um, like put him over Josh Pastor, who had obviously been with the program for a while and was uh, one of the key recruiters on, on Lute's staff. And he ends up in that 2006-2007 season coaching Arizona to, you know, a top three finish in, in the Pac-12 or 10, whatever it was at the time. And people had really started to question if he was still capable of running that program. He had appeared to slow down a little bit. Honestly, it's a lot of the same stuff people now say about Joe Biden, that he had visibly slowed down a little bit. And I remember being at that final press conference, and, and I think I wrote about this, and it's, it's the type of column, I guess I was 30 years old. It's the type of column I wrote when I was 30 that I would not write at 43. Um, I would, I would, it would feel inappropriate writing it, but I wrote it then because, you know, when you're young, sometimes you, you don't know the things you you will eventually learn. But I wrote about how he did look like he was just in that press conference. He was wandering in, you know, in, in his answers and seemed just like he had slipped a little bit. And then of course, before, like literally 10 minutes before the start of the next season, he, it was announced that he was, stepping away from the program. Was it that soon, GP? Because I had wondered about that. I wrote the obit, but that was one thing I didn't kind of take the slide down on because I knew it happened abruptly, but you're saying literally like day of the first game of that season it was announced? I I believe it was like within 10 minutes, 30 minutes of the first preseason game, it was announced that he was taking a leave. And then... In December, and but at the time you're like, okay, a leave, like what, a week, like what is it? Right. Um, in December, I believe it was announced he's gonna be, he's done for the season, and and then he never he never coached again. Um, and that whole thing just got super messy. The, the reason I was looking it up for the purposes of my radio show is that all of that had a pretty massive indirect impact on the Memphis basketball program because when the, when Luke hired Kevin O'Neill and promoted him over Josh Pastner and then Kevin O'Neill was suddenly in charge of the Arizona program and Josh and Kevin, they're not similar personalities. They did not get along too well. Uh, That's when Josh bounced and came to Memphis to join John Calipari staff. And then John leaves after one year to take the Kentucky job and Josh ends up as the Memphis head coach simply because he was there. And the only reason he was there is because of the end of the Lute Olson era, how that went. And so I remember the end being super messy. And, and again, we didn't know he was coaching his last game at the time he was coaching his last game. But if you can take that and set it aside, um, the, I mean, it is one of the all-time great, you know, uh, coaching jobs relative to the consistency with which his program operated at the highest level of the sport year after year after year. Coincidentally enough, um, Thompson's 
time at Georgetown also ended not the exact same way, but he left the program mid-season 98-99 when Georgetown was 7-6 and six and had a divorce he was going through and Georgetown had started to slump. And um, so there were some slight parallels between both of these coaches that we are eulogizing here on today's podcast. Um, also made four Final Fours, 88-94-97 in 2001. He made the Elite Eight seven times. Uh, it's interesting because even though Arizona has a national title, I think it is one of the few schools when you think about and part of this is because Miller hasn't been able to break through to make a Final Four, but it's one of those schools that's like almost, you know, Elite Eight good almost every single season for the most part, uh, but it's, it has hit that barrier plenty of times there. Um, when Arizona won the title in 97, as many people know, uh, it beat three number one seeds. It's the only team to ever do that. It beat, And not only three number ones, it beat three of the four best programs in college basketball history. Kansas, who was the best team in the sport that season, 96-97. They didn't do number one overall seeds back then, but had they done it, Kansas, there's no doubt about it, would have been the number one overall seed in that tournament. Uh, Arizona knocked them off first in the Sweet 16. Then they took out Carolina, and then they beat reigning champs Kentucky in what would be Rick Pitino's last game with Kentucky there. I got to say, um, I mentioned some of the teams that he had that I absolutely love. That 2001 team uh, that lost uh, to Duke uh, in that final weekend, here's who was on it. Gilbert Arenas, pro. Richard Jefferson, pro. Lauren Woods, pro. Luke Walton, pro. And then, like, the significant starting players, Michael Wright, 15 points, 8 boards a game. Jason Gardner, one of the better guards at point guard U in history. That 01 team... Certainly, now it ran up against a really, uh, really like one of the three best Duke teams ever. So that was a that was a tough one there. But then GP, the other two teams, that 2003 Arizona team is just a joke. I mean, this is this is a team that got knocked out. Yep, in the Elite Eight by Kansas. Um, it was the team that played in that unforgettable double OT second round game against Gonzaga in Salt Lake City. They won 96-95. Uh, Blake stepped, the shot didn't go in. Here was the Arizona roster in 03. Jason Gardner, Luke Walton as a senior, Andre Iguodala as a freshman, Will Bynum, whose hops were unreal as a sophomore, Hassan Adams, another freak athlete, Chris Rogers, Channing Fry, Salim Stoudemire. It's just, that team is just outrageous, man. I, I actually can't believe they lost four games. They, they got knocked off uh, in the, I guess, the second round, uh, the semifinals of the Pac-10 tournament that year by UCLA. That was one of their four. Just a crazy good one. And then the last really, really good loot team, it just, I mean, it, it, it lost in one of the most infamous ways possible. Yet again in the Elite Eight, losing 90-89 in OT to Illinois in Chicago. Um, that team had Channing Fry as a senior. Salim was a senior. Hassan Adams was a junior. Mustafa Shakur was a sophomore on that team. Uh, a really, really fun one as well. So he, and he had other really good ones as well, don't get me wrong. But these are some of the, like, those are the three to me, um, kind of, you know, into my, into my high school, into my college years, and, and uh that really just kind of stood stood out and were just so much fun. He, his he just had dudes, man. They were just Arizona really rose. I know UCLA won that title in '95, but like Gonzaga hadn't been propped up yet. It was like Arizona with some Stanford mixed in, and Arizona just was able to go toe to toe with just about almost any program at that point because you know. Cal's either in the NBA or he's getting to Memphis. Duke was not, you know, it was still obviously a really good program, but it, it, they were there was no, like, clear-cut winner, number one program when it came to recruiting. Arizona was as good as any of them at that point. And, uh, and Lute Olsen, you know, he, he just, he... He made himself into a into a college basketball legend there, and and certainly uh, Iowa and Arizona kind of equally um, 
remembered him fondly in, in recent days. But uh, but yeah, he just what he did there has been uh, has been incredible. And I know Sean's been Sean Miller's been under plenty of uh, rightful scrutiny and criticism, but he has been able to <laughs> and sure, sure go ahead throw throw in your jokes with all of it. He has for the most part been able to maintain that after what you said, Paris. Like you had Russ Pinnell come in for the year, like it got. It's interesting to hear your perspective on all that because I wasn't at CBS at that point. I was I had a full time job covering uh, local high high school sport beats, and I ran College Hoops Journal back in the day. Shouts to the OGs who followed that, and I do remember like blogging about that kind of stuff, uh, but having no sources. Like it just from afar, I remember like when Lute Olson's time was like coming to an end, and Arizona was in this weird transition phase. It just felt it just felt bizarre to have Arizona be in the spot because it was right on the heels of when the same exact thing happened at Indiana. So I just remember covering the sport from afar and blogging about it, thinking like two of the like the seven or eight most important programs in the sport are suddenly just spiraling here and it feels bizarre. And, uh, you know, eventually Arizona got back on the right track. But Olsen, by all accounts, everyone who ran into him, just, you know, universally, uh, universally beloved. Yeah, there were two coaches in between. Lute and Sean, uh, Kevin O'Neill and Russ Pennell, like, and, and they each were in charge for one season. So it was one of the stranger transitions from a Hall of Fame iconic coach that his two successors both lasted one year. Like, will that ever ha- is that? I doubt that's ever been the case, and I doubt it'll ever be the case again. Um, while recognizing that forever is a long time um, to have. To be to have Lute Olson in charge from 1983 to 2007, and then the next two coaches each last one year. That speaks to how chaotic the whole thing was. It was, yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely bizarre. And he was, by the way, he was a Tucson guy for life. Once he moved down there, he was he was prominent. Lute was at the games until this past season, uh, but certainly uh, a fixture in that area uh, long after he stepped away. And and yeah, he he remained. Uh, he remains someone of, of high importance in that in that area with that program in that Tucson community, and um, and that's where he ultimately passed. I do also want to mention that, and this is purely my impression because again, uh, we both weren't on the beat when this was really the case. But um, you, you know, you grew up watching college basketball. Now you hear coaches tell stories, but. Um, he survived by five children, 14 grandchildren, and his third wife, Kelly. But uh, his first wife, Bobby, I mean, they were high school sweethearts, uh, you know, married for decades and decades and decades. And she passed from ovarian cancer in early 2001. And um, they were like the first couple of college basketball, best I could tell. Like, she's just one of those marriages where uh, if you saw Lute at the Final Four or you saw him in public in a non-basketball-only capacity, uh, his wife was with him and uh, just a kind of a charming couple. And, you know, it it speaks to... I think their their relationship, their marriage, their bond, and their connection with that community. You don't often get situations where, jokes aside here, um, UCLA is really one of the only exceptions, if the only exception that's, that comes to mind, where you will have uh, an athletic institution name their playing court, playing field, however you want to say it, after not just the coach, but the coach and, and, and their wife or their significant other. And that was the case with Lute and Bobby Olson. So uh, as Lute has passed here, I just I did want to bring up uh, just how much she meant to that program and that community and still does to this day. I mean, it is it is, it is Lute and Bobby Olson court there. So uh, so a, a credit to them and uh, and Lute with, with what he was been able to do uh, for just for decades. A true... 
a true legend who I saw a few of his players kind of say afterward, like, if it's possible to underrate a coaching legend, Lute is is it. And I do think that's true, Parrish. Uh, John Thompson, there will be no underrating or overstating his impact and influence with Lute Olson. Actually, I do think to a certain degree that was the case, and maybe some of that's been fixed in recent days. But, but yeah, he's he's really the second-best coach in Pac-10 history behind John Wooden. So it's a bit of a somber Ion College Basketball Podcast. Hopefully this will be the, the last one for a while we have to do on the passing of a, of a coaching legend. When Lute passed late Thursday, um, we knew that we would eventually talk about him. Um, we did not anticipate also having to talk about John Thompson. So, um, yeah, hopefully this is the last one of these for a while. Yeah, I hope so. And before we get out of here, like, you know, little small bits of news. We'll get to that probably later this week. Um, Might as well just do a quick news roundup here. Uh, You know, decisions are being made this week about when college basketball start date could possibly be. There was a there was a little nugget that got dropped earlier today that the NCAA has actually filed for a trademark for a battle in the bubble. Um, You know, just little breadcrumbs here and there. Mark Emmert said, I guess we're going back 10 days, GP. I'm losing all track of time as always. But he did say on the record that he was willing to stage NCAA championships in a bubble if necessary. Um, so we have movement there. I would anticipate we're going to get more so uh, later this week. So we'll, we will still have that. The Pac-12, as I reported last week, is uh, getting closer to being willing to walk back its decision, provided that its health advisory and medical advisory board assesses the situation and says, okay, we're okay with this. So just keep an eye on that as well. You won't get anything from the PAC 12 in an official capacity. I'm told by sources until mid to late September at the earliest, but nevertheless, it is a significant thing because that is a power conference and, and obviously coaches and athletic directors in that conference think that the uh, decision with basketball and winter sports was made way too early. The football stuff with the big 10 and the PAC 12 is a whole other issue altogether. So uh, just keep that in mind. If stuff that emerges this week that is obviously worthy, we will drop another podcast on you as we continue to learn more about all of that. And we haven't forgot about the draft profiles, but given truly the nature of how sports perish, I mean, last week was just, it was it was historic to see what happened and how it played out. We didn't find it uh, entirely appropriate to drop a draft profile in the midst of all of that with game um, postponements and players going on strikes and all of that. But um, but we'll get back into a rhythm uh, later this week. And, yes, hopefully there will be uh, certainly more upbeat and information as it becomes available. Like you said, the battle in the bubble trademark by the NCAA is the latest bit of evidence that we're, we're going to have an NCAA tournament and we're going to have a college basketball season. I don't know, and I feel like I've said this a million times, I don't know if it'll go well. Uh, I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but if we have to bubble up to play, they're going to bubble up to play. Like I, There was a time in this ridiculous pandemic that I was very skeptical that we would be able to play college basketball in the 2020, what will be the 2020-21 season, um, you know, for, for obvious reasons. I'm no longer skeptical. I'm optimistic. Uh, I, I, again, I don't think it's going to be played uh, inside Rupp Arena with 20,000 fans. Um, I, I don't know where these games are going to – I don't know what it's going to look like. I got some ideas, and we've talked about them before. But I've never been more optimistic than I am right now that we are going to have something that is called the 2020-21 college basketball season that culminates with the 2021 NCAA tournament. I agree, but can I just ask you real quick before we get out of here? Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, NCAA is going to do what it's going to do, but, like, it's got to 
It's got a file for it. That's an that's an, something you can find on an open record, and it's been discovered and now disseminated. To me, it just comes off as I don't know. It just doesn't it just strike you, Parrish, like a little. I don't know. You're trying to get this done with all these players, these quote unquote student athletes, and it's like let's trademark battle in the bubble so we can use it and profit off it in any means possible on shirts, on any kind of uh, you know insignias, memorabilia, whatever. Uh, I don't even know if if trademarking something like battle in the bubble is necessary. I mean, they got their reasons for it. Some of them are you know baldly obvious, but I don't know. It just comes off a little bit. Tacky, wouldn't you agree? In this sure, like, like if you want to be anti NCAA, like they've given you another reason exactly. to 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 point out the undeniable truth about that organization, which is, um, you know, it's built to make money. It's a billion dollar business on the backs of, you know, uh, amateur student athletes. I, you know, I, 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 so like I get it, and I share your reaction. I guess I would just say this: it is somebody's job in that building to think along these lines and to then act um, accordingly. And so I guess I would just chalk it up to this is nothing more than somebody doing their job. Yeah, you're probably right. But it, uh, and beyond all that, I mean, it is another uh, significantly positive sign. And I pro- we're on the doorstep of September. It's still technically August here. But uh, I do promise you that uh, there will be optimistic news for college basketball that comes in the month of September. We just don't know yet entirely how it's going to be framed. And if we get more this week, we will have a podcast on it for you. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Teagle. Legend. Shouts to Larnow. And thank you guys for listening uh, to the podcast in the middle of a pandemic. If you enjoy it, please tell one person about it. If you're not subscribed yet, it is really helpful um, if you subscribe and rate it appropriately. Five stars, nice comments. So please go do that if you've never done it. I'd appreciate it. Norlander also appreciates it. And like he said earlier, we'll talk to you again real soon. Until then, take care. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.